Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm India Bork in London. It's Thursday, the 17th of September. Welcome to the World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Emily is currently away on her very well-deserved holiday slash vacation. So I'm very pleased to be joined this week by India, our online international editor. And we've decided that seeing as India is our in- environment bod and as the UN General Assembly is gathering in New York, this would be an ideal week to pay a much needed look at climate change and global environmental policy. So before we get started, India, you've actually gathered a couple of crucial statistics that, that set the scene for us. Yes, I'm afraid they're mostly quite grim. <laughs> Basically, the one thing you need to know is it is now the hottest it's been in a billion years and humans are to blame. But you don't even need to be told that anymore because if you're on America's West Coast the last few weeks, you can look out your window and see the world is literally on fire. And that is also the case in Brazil and Argentina. We're living in an era of multiple climate disasters right now. They're all overlapping and happening at the same time. But there are things we can do. We need to reduce global emissions by half by 2030, and then to net zero by 2050. And some cities like Copenhagen have said they will get there by 2025. And just this Tuesday, China has said it is willing to contribute more and might be planning to go carbon neutral by 2052. So it's bleak, but there is some glimmers of hope. Brilliant. Just before we move on to discuss all of that in greater detail, India, what's been your moment of the past week that you think is most significant? So the thing that's really caught my eye, it was on Monday, Facebook announced that it has a new policy where it's going to attach links to climate-related posts that redirect you to a new climate information hub, which will provide science-based information about climate change. And that's all an attempt to try and counter the terrible climate misinformation that circulates on Facebook. And that sounds great. And it is great. Do you think think it's likely to work? Well, this is, it's very problematic. I mean, it's not that they are necessarily going to take down these problematic posts that are putting out information such as things like the left-wing group Antifa started, the ongoing US wildfires. They're not taking any of that down until the police literally calls them and asks them to do so. It's just going to kind of redirect people to some general climate facts, which feels, just feels so inadequate in the face of the challenge that we have on our hands. 
Yeah, and for more on that, I'd recommend listeners go back and listen to our episode with Nina Yankovitz, expert on mm. disinformation. You can find that on our on our podcast webpage, newsetsmo.com slash world hyphen review hyphen podcast. I'm going to claim, seeing as Emily's away, I will bend the rules slightly this week and claim two moments, both from Wednesday. Seeing as this is a climate episode, I wanted to flag up that European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen gave her State of the Union speech yesterday as we record this and did indeed, as flagged in last week's episode, call for a 55% cut in EU greenhouse gas emissions relative to 1990, up from a previous goal of 40% by 2030, which was a sort of political compromise between those conservatives who wanted to go to 50 and socialists and greens who wanted 65%. So a significant moment there. I also want to flag up that on Wednesday, Japan got a new prime minister. Yoshihide Suga takes over from Shinzo Abe after the latter's resignation after becoming Japan's longest serving prime minister. But we understand that Suga will be essentially running a continuity government, continuing the work that Shinzo Abe had sort of had started. So that's one to watch. With that, I would love to introduce our guest this week. We're really delighted to be joined by Tom Rivet-Karnak, who is a political strategist. He has worked for the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, along with the diplomat and executive secretary to the convention, Cristiano Figueres. They were together pretty fundamental architects of the Paris Climate Accord in 2015, and together have founded Global Optimism, which is a political strategy center focusing on many of those subjects. They're also the joint authors of the book, The Future We Choose, Surviving the Climate Crisis. So no one better really to join us and discuss <laughs> these issues in this UN General Assembly week. Tom, thank you ever so much for being with us today. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for the invite and for that generous introduction. Really lovely to have you here. Uh, can I just say the name Global Optimism stands quite stark against that introduction you gave there. So we can have to claw some ground <laughs> yes, back towards We might need to explore that contrast over the course of the <laughs> Very much so. And maybe we could start with the story of why Christiana turned to you back before the Paris Agreement negotiations and, and what taking that decision to join her team was like off the back of the disastrous talks in Copenhagen in 2009. So I first met Christiana in 2013, early 2013, which is a few years before the negotiations that led to the Paris Agreement. And I'd been working climate change for 10 years. By that point, I'd worked in the private sector, I'd worked in NGOs, and I'd always had a kind of something of a degree of skepticism when viewing the UN international process, just because it seems so stop start and so difficult to make any progress. But I'd always had this kind of political strategy role where I tried to sort of, you know, figure out how you make big things happen in a variety of ways. So then I happened to meet Christiana through a friend, a man called Paul Dickinson in early 2013. And we got to talking about the mountain that she had left to climb to reach the agreement. And, you know, at that time, it looked like the stars might align for an agreement, but there were so many risks around, was it going to be ambitious enough? What was going to be implemented? Would all countries participate? And all these issues in the past that had previously derailed the negotiations, like, you know, national ratification, etc., so we got on and she seemed to feel that I would have a fit. And what she asked me to do was to come to the UN and play a very different role to anyone who was there. The UN Framework Convention on Climate Change is populated with brilliant people who are able to navigate these very complicated negotiations. But she wanted someone who was kind of very deliberately an outsider to that, who could join some of the dots. And so the, 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 what she said to me when I joined was, your role is to make the agreement more ambitious and more likely. 
and you can't tell anyone you're doing it. And so my role was to pull all the levers that were normally outside of the control of the UN. You know, if we had a problem with Russia not coming forward with a national contribution or the US not taking responsibility for its emissions or something else, I found other ways to influence those governments using other governments, using third parties, to try to leverage that towards an outcome, to keep a hand on the tiller of the progress. So I'd like to talk about how you did that and 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 what what actually came out of the Paris climate agreement. But sure. just briefly, I mean um, India you knows a lot more about this and you certainly do Tom. But why why was Copenhagen seen as a, as such a disappointment? Why did that legacy of I mean is it too strong to say failure sort of provide the backdrop to this work? Yeah, so so Copenhagen was kind of the last attempt to do something that really is regarded as being almost impossible these days, which is, you know, if you th- it was basically a top-down negotiation similar to the Kyoto Protocol in the late 1990s, which is a negotiation where every country agrees to a collective emissions cut and then all of those countries go back home and try to ratify that in their national legislatures. Top down, basically. Top down. And, and it has a very unhappy history, right? Because it's so easy to derail it. And even if you're in success, even if you're successful, sometimes the national legislatures don't then ratify, as has been the case with the Senate so often. So the idea of Paris was to replace that with two other mechanisms. One is a shared long-term goal around where we're actually going to get to at the end by 2050. And then a series of nationally determined steps on that road that you come back every few years. So like you might say, you know, I want to lose two stone in weight in six months time and I'm going to set myself two weekly targets to get there. You might not be able to set yourself, you know, every target along the way, but you just look at the next piece of road ahead of you. And the idea is that that mechanism means that technology improves, the momentum improves, and it becomes easier and easier to stimulate technology and then to make bolder and bolder political decisions as that path unfolds. And that was the difference in Paris. And was there a turning point at Paris that made that new way of agreeing things possible? Well, so, I mean, that that had been cooking since Copenhagen and really Christiana, my, you know, my, my business partner and, and co-author, was really championing that idea of that shift of an, of an international model to a new form of international agreement. So that was well established by the time we got to Paris, but there was absolutely drama and tension. I mean, it was real political jeopardy up to the last minute in terms of would we get the long-term agreement in place? Would there be any mechanism for financial support? Would there be any mechanism for adaptation and other finance, et cetera? So the moment in Paris that I often talk about is the creation of this group called the High Ambition Coalition. And it was really something because it was the beginning of the second week and, you know, the countries that didn't want an ambitious agreement had kind of begun to gather and playing their old tricks of like putting blockages in the way of negotiations. And it was an alliance of developed countries, developing countries, vulnerable small island states. And they got together in secret and said, we will keep each other's backs and we will protect the negotiation to ensure it delivers an ambitious agreement. And then they came into the hall hand in hand, small countries, big countries, to protect this. It was really something to this thunderous applause. And that was really when everything turned and it led us to a positive outcome. Do you think something like that would be possible today? I mean, it feels like, you know, we read a lot, particularly as it's UN General Assembly week again, about the the decline of multilateralism and, you know, a difficult world environment where the assumption of good faith is so hard to maintain. 
and where you know there, there is a genuine risk of a sort of race to the bottom on, on on so many of these issues. Do you think that was just something that happened to be possible in 2015 when you had a you know relatively cooperative U.S. government where you had you know where relations between U.S. and China hadn't soured to the extent that they have today, where climate skepticism hadn't taken hold in in in, in the kind of governments and chancelleries of so many countries around the world. I mean, could could you imagine that being possible still, or was that just a, a product of that particular time? Well, I mean, I think what you're pointing to, which is absolutely right, is that we had a fortunate confluence of factors with with President Obama, with 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 the way Xi Jinping saw this. And don't forget, there was a big US-China announcement a year before Paris that really set us on the road towards doing this. And you're absolutely right. And you know this better than me, Jeremy. You know, the, the sort of the, the whole principle of multilateralism is a bit less in vogue now than it was in 2015. And the idea that countries can come together and do big things. So I just call out a couple of things, though. One is the political jeopardy genuinely helped us in Paris, right? There was this big go, don't go moment that everyone wanted to be on the right side of history. And once you had momentum, that kind of swept everybody up moving in the right direction. And I haven't lost faith that that can happen again. I mean, irrespective of President Trump, who you can rely on to make the wrong decisions, hopefully we're now towards the end of that presidency. But the other thing I'd say is that a few years ago, we were very worried when President Trump stood up and said he's going to take the US out of the Paris Agreement. And we were like, oh, my God, you know, this is going to be the beginning of the fraying of the alliance that brought the Paris Agreement together. But since then, the number of countries who have said they are going to leave the Paris Agreement still stands at one, right? For all of the skepticism and all the uncertainty and all the Bolsonaro and, you know, everybody else and everything that's happening with Australia and other parts of the world, it is still just the US who've said they'll pull out. And as you said in your introduction, what we're actually seeing is the EU, China and others now saying that they will still step up and increase their ambition because the impacts are getting worse and they see what they have to do. So the glimmers of the desire to really come together and do something significant are there. And I have confidence that we will see a reemergence of that. Mm. Could you just just briefly remind us of what was agreed in 2015 and signed up for in 2016 and then what we need to see happen next? So, I mean, at very high level, I mean, there's lots of parts to the Paris Agreement, but but very high level, basically, the commitment was to reach net zero emissions by the middle of the century, and that all countries would provide five yearly plans to keep themselves on target with that. And they would come back every five years to improve their next five yearly target to get them closer to that trajectory to the ultimate goal. Now, the first set of plans that were submitted in Paris do not take us on the pathway to that outcome, right? They take us actually to warming of 3.7 degrees. But the idea was that you set that target, you send that signal to the private sector, you get the great forces of innovation and entrepreneurialism and investment moving in that direction. And then five years later, countries can come back to the table and increase their commitments. As you're now seeing, right? You're now seeing the EU has come back, that China's talking about it, the UK is thinking about their their first ever independent NDC outside of the EU. So the big test now is, does that mechanism work? Is that strong enough to get enough countries to come back to the table and make their commitments? And that's what the road from here to Glasgow at the end of next year is about. What is the risk? Like, if we don't meet 1.5, what? Even if we meet 1.5, I know we're looking at a very different kind of world, but if we don't meet it, if we reach two or three degrees, what are your fears? Well, I mean, you know, and and you alluded to this at the beginning, but the trouble is we've left this so late that we have now entered 
And it sounds like an exaggeration to say this, right? To say that we have now entered the decade in which we will have more of an impact on the future of life on Earth than any decade in the history of humanity. But it's really not. Science tells us now that unless we halve emissions in the next 10 years, fully 50% reduction, then we will already have begun to lose control of the climatic system to the point where these really quite alarming natural feedback loops begin to kick in. And when that happens, what you find is that those places in the in the ecosystem that used to draw down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere will flip and they will start to emit it. And at that point, it becomes basically impossible for us to control anymore. The mix of the atmosphere then has less to do with our own emissions than it does with the natural cycle of the planet. And we can't really control it anymore. And, and, and then, you know, then we've lost. Well, no, you hear the phrase, the seas will boil. Is that a reality? Well, obviously, they may reach 100 degrees centigrade, but you already get places where dissolved, sometimes methane that sits on the, on the sea floor when you get a change in temperature, that gets released and then it looks like the sea, seas boil already. I mean, again, look at just the last nine months, what's happened in Australia with the wildfires, what's happened in California, what's happened in the Arctic. You know, these are really concerning, but they're also early signs of what we can face if we don't get on top of this. I don't know, though, but I mean, I personally feel that we still have every possibility ahead of us to get on top of this now. And maybe it always had to come to this point where we were really facing these terrible potential impacts before we got our act together. And there is a lot of positive signs that we will do that as well. That brings us up to the sort of the present day, I suppose. What what should we be looking out for at the UN General Assembly? I mean, I mean, can you give us a sense, firstly, of why and in what respect the UNGER, as it's called, is significant. And what, particularly looking at climate change, among various other multi, multilateral issues that kind of come to the fore in the next days, what should we be looking out for from, from the leaders, from the negotiations? Why is this a significant week or so? Well, I mean, in all honesty, and, and we'll, we'll see what happens, but I don't expect this week to be very significant in terms of big climate announcements by countries. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is we still have a year to run until the climate negotiations. Everybody's waiting to see what happens in the US election. We feel very confident that if Biden wins, based on conversations we've had with senators and others, that he will make climate the first legislative priority of his presidency. So in a way, we sort of almost don't want to see too many countries come forward now because it's better that they wait until we have Biden, hopefully, in place, which will then lead to the US playing that very important global diplomatic role to encourage other countries to step up. When you say we have a year to run, you mean you mean a year until the postponed COP26? Exactly. In Glasgow. I think that these negotiations will be very important with world leaders coming together, albeit in a very different way because of COVID this year. I do think there'll be important bilateral discussions behind the scenes. I think the UK is increasingly playing a very serious role in engaging with other countries and persuading them to step up. The UK, of course, as the president of the upcoming negotiations in Glasgow next year, really has the responsibility to do the global strong arming and getting everybody to increase their ambition and come forward with it. And I think in a way, the big moment that we'll see on climate will come on the 12th of December, when it's five years since the signing of the Paris Agreement. Hmm. And Boris Johnson, together with Emmanuel Macron, will be together in order to announce the ambition through to the climate negotiations at the end of next year. We'll see an enhanced, well, we'll see the first submission of a UK nationally determined commitment that was always previously wrapped up in the EU commitment. It's now being pulled out and we'll see what that number is. That number, by the way, has to be in the region of 68 
to 70% reduction by 2030. By 2030. That actually brings me on to another point I wanted to ask about, which you alluded to with reference to Paris. But I mean, particularly set against the current backdrop, you know, we've, we've covered in the New Statesman and indeed on this podcast, the way that, you know, the pandemic, among other things, has hit the global south harder, um, not least through the indirect effects, you know, whether it's the risk of famines, whether it's the risk of economic distress, whether it's other priorities being put on the back burner. Is the, the rich world to anything like the degree necessary, stepping up to bear the burden of the reductions needed in the next few years? Well, no, is the short answer to that. But I also think that there is... what The reason a climate negotiation was so difficult for so long was because of this issue of fairness that is at the core of your question. So for a long time, developing countries would say to developed countries, to the rich world, you caused this problem. And what's more, you said you'd sort it out in 1992. So go away and do something significant, and then we'll talk about a global agreement. But then the developed world would say to the developing world, everything's different now. The majority of the emissions come from large developing countries. We need to come together and form this alliance. So that's what happened in Paris is countries came together to make that shared commitment to do something, which was the first time that everybody said everybody has to make some commitment to reducing emissions. But as you've said, if you look at the historical responsibility, the vast majority of that is Western Europe and North America and a few other places around the world. And many of those countries that have done the least to cause climate change are those countries that will be most affected by it. Now, there have been some mechanisms and some attempts to create financial structures in order to support those countries to develop, but none to, to adapt to climate change and develop in a clean way. But none of those are anywhere near significant enough to actually make the difference that's needed. So that's one of the step ups mm -hmm. that we're going to have to see. And that's always at the core of the negotiations. If the developed world wants to see the developing world make increased commitments, finance is going to be a key part of that. Um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about China's role, particularly, especially like what difference it made in 2015, the role China played, and also how that's different to the role it could maybe needs to play now. You know, obviously, China plays an enormously outsized role in all kinds of ways, including in the negotiations. In the Lima COP a year before Paris, when we were really struggling to get the words that would bring the developed and the developing countries together, Christiana and I had a late night visit from the Chinese negotiator who pointed us to the text of a bilateral agreement that China had put in place with the US and said, look, if you lift some language from that, I think I can help you get this through mm. the G77, which is the developing bloc. So I just tell you that story to indicate behind the scenes prior to Paris, they were absolutely fundamental. And always when there was a difficult blockage in the negotiation, there would be a soft knock on the door of the executive secretary's office and it would be Xi Jinping coming in to help us identify how to unblock that. And they played a crucial role in bringing the whole developing world, the G77 together. Now, of course, what we're seeing is that climate is becoming a subset of the geopolitical fight that is going on between China and the US, climate change becoming a subset of that. But personally, I feel very encouraged that the statement this week from Wang Weibin, that China was willing to do more and is now considering long-term climate neutrality. I mean, that's how China does diplomacy, right? This stuff mm. gets woven into the statements of the foreign ministry spoke spokesperson. And that is not an accident that's been in there. That's been approved at a very high level. So the role that China plays in deciding to take this leadership moment, even in the absence of the US, 
that's really important. It's really significant that they're still doing it. And their willingness to bring the rest of the developing world along with them is something that can really make the difference. It really does seem so hopeful when you put it like that. And, and I want to trust that China can be the climate leader we need it to be. But this just seems so hard to trust China at the moment from all, on multiple fronts. Yeah. Yeah. And climate and its actual, the gap between its rhetoric on climate and its actions is quite concerning. Yeah, I think that's true. And so I'm not suggesting that we should have a sort of a blanket trust of that. But if you listen to, so someone who's extremely close to this, so Christiana and I run a podcast each week called Outrage and Optimism, where we speak to a range of different people about climate and what's going on. We just had James Thornton on. He's the CEO of Client Earth, which is the most amazing organization collection of lawyers who who take on cases for the planet and james is one of the closest advisors to the chinese government particularly on the belt and road initiative and a range of other things and i would really encourage you to listen to that episode it's just a couple of weeks ago because it's enormously encouraging from somebody who really sees inside the mechanism and of course it's not all moving in one direction it's stop start but he knows it better than i do at this moment and i thought it was really encouraging his insights in the intentions and the direction of travel of the Chinese government. And on the other side, the other side of the world, what happens if Trump wins a second term? Yeah, you're right. No, that's, that's, of course, the key issue. I mean, so let's first of all, look at what happens if he doesn't. If he doesn't win a second term, we feel really confident that it is obviously just going to be night and day. And when Obama won, there was some real hope that this would move things forward on climate. But then he decided to go for healthcare first. And by the time he pivoted to climate, it was his second term and all he could really do was use executive power. But Biden, we feel really confident, will make climate his big legislative push and use the diplomatic muscle of the US. So that will change everything in terms of the trajectory we're on. If the US goes the other direction and Trump is reelected, then there's no denying that that will be a major setback, both for climate and also, of course, for the whole process of multilateralism. Our major concern then is that you will see a sort of endorsement of the rejection of multilateralism, which is much more widespread than you saw in one term. So you might see countries like Brazil decide that they're going to pull out of the Paris Agreement. You might see countries like India not make good on some of the efforts that they're currently making to increase their ambition. And there'll be no consequence, really, for countries not to do this, depending on the role that the EU plays. The hope would still be that the EU and China could form an alliance that would come together and bring the world still to the negotiating table and still to increase ambition. We would definitely see people like Mike Bloomberg doubling down on states and cities and businesses, but there is no denying it would be a major blow for the global attempt to deal with this issue. It seems to me it sort of brings together two two big worries. One, as you say, the effect of the second term of Trump appearing to be endorsed, of the sense that Trumpism's more than just a passing aberration that then that then echoes through the global system and sees other countries say, you know what, we're not, we're not going to keep believing in this. We'll, we'll check out of this process, whether it's Brazil or India or whatever. And then the second thing is going back to what you said earlier about the importance of the next few years in particular. I mean, you know, a second Trump term, you would see a post-second Trump term president inaugurated in what would it be, January 2025? So it takes us right into the middle of that period that you've you characterized as fundamental yeah. to, to all of this. So a lot at stake in the US. Yeah, yeah, and you lose half the decade. And and I mean, so far, 
the US is still more or less, I haven't checked this in the last six months or so, but it, until very recently, it was still on track to meet its Paris commitments, despite Trump undermining all the environmental regulations, because everything was baked into the system and the private sector was moving and the states were moving. But that can only go so far, right? If he's reelected, that would not continue and we'd expect to see the emissions go in the other direction. Whether we could then get back on top of that and bring that back four or five years from now, when you think about what our politics might look like by then, I mean, you know, it's that's tough. Yeah. Well, that, that brings us out at um, where, where I wanted to kind of finish up with this conversation, which is the big question of mindset. Listeners may, be, may have been struck listening to you that, that you do ma- manage to, even in the face of worries like a second Trump term, maintain an optimistic sort of attitude towards what can be done. And obviously that clearly played a role in getting Paris across the line five years ago. And in, in your book, Christiana and you write about the three, three mindsets that you say are kind of the, uh, the foundation of making progress on any of this. You talk about stubborn optimism, endless abundance and radical regeneration. It would be remiss of me not to ask you to just sort of briefly talk us through those and why why you and Christiana think those are so important. Now, this is something I really learned from, from Christiana, and it sort of was quite shocking to people prior to Paris, where, I mean, the number of times we go into press conferences and someone say, oh, Miss Figueres, isn't this impossible? And no one's going to manage to do it and blah, blah, blah. And she would say, absolutely not. This is what is required of us. This is what we're facing at this particular moment. And we will not give up and we will not decide this is impossible before we've actually had a moment to figure out what's possible and ride out to meet this, right? I mean, if you think about some of the stuff we've been talking about up to now, the next 10 years, what a privilege for all of us to be alive right now, to have the impact that we're going to have on the future of the planet. And for us to sort of cower in fear and say, oh, it's all really difficult and we're not sure if we're going to make it and we feel really anxious about what the future is going to look like. Is that really who we want to be at this particular moment? Now, what I saw prior to Paris is that when you adopt that gritty, realistic, stubborn form of optimism, actually you can infect other people and you can help them understand that this is a moment where we need to show up with as much of ourselves, as much of our humanity as possible and do what we can. And when you think more about that, actually that stubborn optimism has been most relevant through history when the outlook is the darkest. It's not dependent upon a belief that you're necessarily going to be successful or even really that things are going very well. But think about those moments in the dark when someone has said, we're going in this direction, you know, fight them on the beaches would be obviously a a principal one or, or, or we're going to put a man on the moon. There's been these great moments of transformation where people have refused to accept that failure is inevitable. Mm. And that in itself has transformed the outcome, right? That stubborn optimism wasn't the result of success. It was the cause of it. And my sense is, yes, Trump might win a second term. Yes, we're going to have all kinds of pushbacks, but we're never going to get the chance of the next 10 years again that we have right now. So who do we want to be in those 10 years? Do we want to look back later and say, oh, it was all a bit frightening and we just sort of cowered in fear about the possibility of failure? Or do we want to ride out to meet that with as much courage as we can muster? Because actually that in itself fills that action with a sense of meaning and purpose. One of the mistakes we make on climate change is we think our actions to do something about it are fully dependent on the ultimate outcome. You know, it's futile for me to do what I can unless I feel like actually the outcome is going to be good. But think about other areas of human endeavor, right? Think about nurses and caregivers who have been looking after patients during COVID-19. They couldn't control the spread of the disease. They couldn't control whether the patients they cared for lived or died. 
but we have this intrinsic sense that what they're doing is full of meaning, whether or not they can control the outcome. So we need to find a way, we need to find the determination to do the next right thing at this moment of emergency, all of us, and the outcome will take care of itself. It's interesting. There were a lot of references early on in the pandemic to Camus, the the plague, as a sort of guide to sort of doggedly doing one's best in given circumstances. I mean, do you, do you used to take take inspiration from particular, I don't know, works of literature or art in, in, in this? Because it, it is sort of on that level, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's so many examples from 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 literature and art, and also and also just from history, right? I mean, when you start looking at it in that way, you realise that that's how change has always happened, and it doesn't have to be focused on a particular leader. You know, it doesn't have to be strong leadership. In fact, it's better when it bubbles up from everywhere. And there's all these amazing signs of hope. I mean, look at what the kids have done, Greta, and it's not just Greta, but you know, all of the other young people around the world have poked this sense of unfairness in all of us. You know, our our attraction to justice is obviously fundamental. And their ability to poke that and say, you know what, climate change is not only economically and geographically unfair, it's also generationally unfair. And they are the recipients of a much depleted world. And the transformation that's made in the way many people see this, this can flip really quickly. Right now, we have the possibility to turn this in a good way and then look back in years to come, having come this close, and turned it round and reforested the earth and recreated green cities and cleaned the air and created good new jobs and looked after each other properly. It kind of had to get to this point before we had this opportunity, but that can be our legacy, and that's up to all of us. I think that's the most optimistic I've felt in months. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. We've gone, we've gone from the reasons for, for pessimism to, to some glimpses of hope. I like, I like that very much. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. In the spirit of hope and optimism, it's now time for a section that we like to call... (laughs) You Ask Us. (laughs) Very well done. So our You Ask Us question this week, we've actually sort of, we've, we've, we've already started answering it in some respects, but it's, what does it mean for the Paris agenda that COP26 has been postponed? And what does success look like in Glasgow next year. So obviously it's presumably it's bad news that it's not going ahead this year, right? How do you see that, Tom? And kind of particularly for our listeners in the UK, what does the UK government need to need to be thinking going into it and aiming for when it does take place? Sure. So it's a it's a very good question. I mean I, I think it's mixed that the COP is delayed. Obviously every year counts. So a delay of a year is not good. On the other hand, you know, if Trump's still there, we're kind of screwed anyway. But if he's gone, then we have a chance with Biden to actually implement something really significant with a rate, you know, with much more momentum. So it could turn out to be a good thing. Now, as I said, the Paris Agreement is based on a series of five yearly commitments. And in each of those five yearly commitments, we need to bring down that temperature trajectory from its current trajectory of 3.7 closer to the 1.5. It's not going to fill the whole gap the new commitments. We can tell you that right now. It's not going to come down to 1.5, but it might well come down to below three. And I would say if the national commitments bring us down below three, that's a success and that gears us up for future success. Alongside that, one of the really great outcomes from the inclusive open process that was run in Paris is that now those negotiations don't happen in a weird vacuum. They happen in public and everyone is invited 
to participate, including cities and businesses and investors and states and regions and faith groups and everyone else. And so what that means is you see the beginnings of a grand alliance that I think will be the big success story in Glasgow. I think you will see national governments making meaningful but contained step-ups in their national commitment, but you will see a massive outpouring of ambition from all the other actors across society who are being driven to commit to really impressive emissions reduction goals. And I think when you put your arms around the whole of that and judge the whole of that as the outcome of Glasgow, I think it will be really spectacular. I was also just wondering, it's going to be maybe very different. This will be, it will be in person, I think, in Glasgow at the minute, although obviously that could change with COVID-19. But for people to be meeting again in person, for diplomats to be having those in-person conversations I'm interested in how that will affect trust and maybe a sense of coming together after something quite cataclysmic in another in another way this past year. I think you're right. I th- but the other thing to remember about Glasgow is that there's not really any negotiated outcome. All the negotiations were done in Paris. We've got a clear trajectory. What needs to happen now is nationally determined step ups. Mm. And then in Glasgow, they all get aggregated together for the new trajectory. And that has good and bad elements to it. The good element is that there's less chance for it to go wrong. You know, it will be an adding up. The bad element is that there's not much political jeopardy. And political jeopardy is very useful if you're a political strategist because you use those moments to drive everybody to to more ambition. But there's not going to be a moment of tension and a gavel coming down and did we get it, did we not? It's going to be more an aggregation of the efforts from here to there, which requires a very different strategy. You mentioned Greta Thunberg a moment ago, and uh, we had we had a very good uh, profile of her by Martin Fletcher recently, which I will include the link to on the page of this podcast, because obviously her example is very interesting. But on that, what role can individuals and activists play, particularly in the run up to this absolutely crucial summit next year? What's the right way? What are the right messages to be taking to politicians, governments, officials and so forth? What, what can one as an individual do? So it's a it's a great question. And and in the book that, that Christiana and I co co-authored, we we set this out, I think, in quite a different way to how it's been done before. So just very briefly, we talk about three groups of actions that we can all do. The first alludes to what I said before. It's about how we choose to show up in this decisive decade. Actually deciding to show up with with gritty, determined, stubborn optimism that we will actually do our part at this critical moment is fundamental to everything else we might do. So we don't think of that as ancillary to delivering the outcome. It's really part of it. The second part is our own personal impact on the planet. And some people dismiss that and they say, well, we're not going to solve this with personal action and they're right, but we're also not going to solve this without personal action. And we all need to take responsibility for our part in that. Now, as we know, we need to reduce emissions by at least 50% in the next 10 years. Each individual should also take on that challenge. And actually, as human beings, we tend to overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can do in 10 years. With proper planning and thinking about it, 10 years is more than enough time to cut your emissions in half and think about how your life might be different, how you transform your capital intensive items. And then you can be part of that big transformation. And people who take those actions are generally evidence shows us they'll then go on and take more and more actions and get more involved in the issue and feel less anxious about it as well. And then the final part is how we engage with power in all its forms. And this is really critical because this is where the outcome will come. So 
How do we engage with power as consumers, as citizens, as voters, as employees? We need to use all of those different roles that we have to push the companies we work for to be part of this race to zero, this grand alliance, to push the local government where we live to declare a climate emergency, to vote in accordance with these different issues as a number one priority in the next 10 years, particularly if you live in a swing state in the United States, but just anyway. So all of those different issues, those three buckets, how we show up, how we behave in our own actions and how we engage in power. Doing all of those different actions are really crucial and can tip the balance at this critical moment. Thank you, Tom. That was so fascinating. And now we have a section of the podcast where we highlight a moment that we'll be watching out for next week. Do you have one in mind? I do. And I'm going to cheat if that's right, because I've got two and one's not next week. Is that all right? Yes, please. Okay. So the one that is next week is on Monday will be the launch of New York Climate Week, which is the UN General Assembly Week. And there will be a big event around this race to zero. Now, this is not part of the international negotiations, but Nigel Topping, the the Prime Minister's high-level champion in the UK, will be giving a major push to this series of announcements from business that really take things further and faster. And we will see some amazing commitments next week, in particular from Amazon. So look look out for that. And then the later one is on the 10th of October, TED, as in the the well-known TED Talks, will be launching a global event called TED Countdown. And it will be on YouTube, it will be available everywhere, and it will be about gathering global momentum towards the COP at the end of next year. And there'll be talks from a whole variety of different fascinating people. Prince William will be giving a talk, there'll be musicians, there'll be actors, there'll be artists, and it will really be a kind of moment that the world pivots its attention back to the positive agenda on climate change and how we can deal with it. And Jeremy, what's on your radar? As mentioned, I'll be looking out for obviously the UN General Assembly. I'm going to be particularly interested to follow the high level general debate, which begins next Tuesday, uh, the 22nd of September. It's going to be interesting because I think as, as we mentioned, this will be almost entirely virtual. It will be anchored from New York, where the UNGA usually takes place, but it will be people will be beaming in from around the world. And so my understanding is that you're going to have more world leaders participate than ever usually do in a, in a UN General Assembly because they will be able to dial in from wherever. So it could be, it will be, notwithstanding what, what Tom said about, you know, wanting people to slightly hold their fire on, on, on environmental commitments until next year. I'll be watching that with great interest as a sort of picture, a sort of patchwork of world politics in our remarkable times. What about what about you, India? What will you be looking out for in the next week? So my data is also a little bit of a cheat, but essentially next Tuesday was meant to be the Biodiversity Summit at the UN General Assembly. But in fact, it's been bumped to the following week, which is actually a good thing because it's been moved to the high level. It's been promoted to the high level week because it's really hitting home now in light of the pandemic and in light of COVID and especially it's spread from bats and animals that have been kind of pushed into ever smaller spaces by encroaching human activity. And it's making people realise we must do something about protecting and promoting biodiversity as well. Absolutely. And on that point, um, listeners, we will also be continuing this environmental theme through into this week's issue of our World Review newsletter. So do sign up for that if you don't already, newsetsmentcom slash world hyphen review. 
India will be writing about biodiversity, we'll be looking at the picture on emissions. Ida has been looking at a very concerning potential oil spill. Look out for that. And I would also draw your attention to this week's issue on, on several of the themes we've talked about this week of the New Statesman's print edition. We lead our cover feature this week is Planet COVID. We have dispatches from individuals around the world writing about how their lives have changed, whether it's in Rio de Janeiro, Delhi, Ho Chi Minh City, Russia's Black Coast. We, 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 we're trying to tell that, that global story there on COVID and also have a very powerful leader on the links between COVID and, and climate change in, in our sort of strained multilateral times. So do look out for this week's issue of the New Statesman. So I think all that remains to say is thank you, Tom Rivet-Karnak, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Tom. It's been truly inspiring and um, unexpectedly optimistic. And indeed, on that note, listeners, you can follow Tom and Christiana Figueres' work at Global Optimism, globaloptimism.com. I believe you can also click through to their, their book, The Future we choose, as mentioned, to read more about, about these issues and, and, and including that fundamental issue about the importance of the right mentality, that stubborn optimism. So uh, I'd strongly recommend that. We'll put a link to that too on the page to this podcast on our World Review podcast homepage, newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review hyphen podcast. So do check that out. And a final small reminder, you can subscribe to the World Review newsletter and follow all our international coverage at our international homepage, newstatesman.com forward slash international. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening and until next week. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of non-stop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.